despite you know all of the you know the the plain inequalities that exist, uh, you know which situation is better? And I, I just think that the you know the progress that has been made towards those ideals is uh, is undeniable. But you know that doesn't mean that you then say, well, but everything is great, and you know let's not worry about existing un- injustices. What you do as a liberal is you say. Yes, we're still not fully living up to those ideals, and so we need to go ahead and correct them. But our society is correctable, and we can, you know, use policy uh, and politics to make changes to make things better. It is my privilege to welcome to Forward political science PhD from Harvard University, senior fellow uh, at Stanford now, and the author of 10 books, including his latest Liberalism and Its Discontents, Frank Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama, technically. Welcome, Frank. How are you? Uh, very good, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure. I quoted you in my last book. Uh, I've been an admirer of yours intellectually for a long time, but in, in my last book, I quoted you as saying America uh, is in danger of becoming what you called a vitocracy, which is that I can't do anything, but I can keep you from doing anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. So political scientists uh, talk about uh, political systems and how they differ from one another from country to country in terms of how many veto points there are. That is to say, these blocking uh uh, provisions in constitutions and in law that allow people to stop things, but not necessarily to do positive things. And uh, the United States has a lot more than other democracies. And uh, I think we've seen our system kind of freeze up over the last few years uh, because of them. Yeah, we have more choke points, uh, as you pointed out in some of your earlier books. And I get the sense that the focus of your thinking has shifted over time. Um, there was a period when liberalism, classical liberalism seemed ascendant in the world um, X number of years ago, and then it has essentially been in decline uh, for the last number of years. When do you, is that fair to say? And when do you think that that decline started? Uh, yeah, I think that it really picked up steam in the middle of the second decade of the 21st century. Uh, and it was attacked right uh, from both the right and the left. The, the one from the right is one we're pretty familiar with. You have all these populist, nationalist politicians all over the world, from Viktor Orban in Hungary to Donald Trump in this country, who uh, basically are not liberal. And by liberal, uh, I don't mean liberal in the American sense of progressive or left of center. I mean it in a classical sense where individual rights, uh, equal individual rights are protected by a rule of law and by constitutional checks and balances. And the common characteristic of these um, populists is that they admire strong men that aren't constrained by these kinds of checks and balances. Uh, and that's why I think a lot of them actually admire Vladimir Putin, because he's a kind of archetype of a strong man who doesn't have to listen to anybody before he makes a decision, invades a neighboring country, you know, uh, so forth. And um, that critique, you know, of liberalism says, you know, liberal societies are weak, they're indecisive, 
they don't set higher goals for themselves uh, and so forth. But I also think that there's a problem on the left because one of the core values of a liberal society is tolerance uh, and freedom of speech. And those principles have been under attack by a lot of progressives who, uh, you know, they, they claim that they want to protect diversity, but it's a, only a certain kind of diversity having to do with race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, uh, diversity in political opinions, diversity in attitudes towards religion or certain kinds of values. They don't, <laughs> they don't uh, want to protect so much. And I think there you've seen also uh, an attack on uh, liberal values and institutions. And so I think both the left and the right have kind of converged in saying that liberalism is passe. You know, that was the baby boom generation believed in that. But, you know, we want something different. Yeah. And, and, and those are the key ideas in your book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. You define classical liberalism uh, as rule of law and free media and checks and balances. And uh, a lot of these institutions of democracy that America has uh, benefited from over the last number of, of generations. And now those institutions are very much being threatened. And you characterize the threats as coming from both sides, but in different ways. And I, I thought that your book was in some ways an incredible summation of what a lot of people are thinking about, but didn't put it in as sophisticated language uh, as, as you have. So let, let's retrace that argument a little bit. Uh, so sure. where did the classical liberal tradition uh, come from originally? Well, it's very old. Uh, it really originated in the middle of the 17th century after Europe's wars of religion, you know, following the Protestant Reformation, Protestants and Catholics spent the next 150 years killing each other all over Europe over, you know, questions like transubstantiation is the, you know, is the bread and wine, the actual body of Christ or a representation of uh, his blood and body. Uh, and, you know, at the end of that period, a lot of liberal thinkers said, maybe we shouldn't be killing each other over these uh, visions of the good life, maybe we should just protect life itself. And so the right to life that is in the Declaration of Independence, you know, really comes from that belief that it's basically just life itself that needs to be protected in a regime that tolerates uh, a variety of visions of, of the good life. Uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, instead of religion, it became nationalism, you know, these very uh, aggressive uh, uh, assertions of national identity that said that one group is superior to another group and could conquer uh, other peoples and repress uh, ethnic groups within their own society. Uh, and again, in 1945, you know, people said, well, uh, maybe that's not such a great way to organize uh, at least Europe. Uh, maybe we should have a liberal order in which tolerance and rule of law protects the rights of everybody, regardless of what group they're uh, a member of. And so, you know, it, it went wrong uh, at several points in history. Uh, and we come back to liberalism in the end, because it is a way of managing diverse societies. And so you have these classical liberal traditions that arise in Europe and that uh, America very much codifies. 
uh, in, in its founding documents, or at least tries to. I mean, you know, like you characterize that look, like, like our thinking has evolved certainly since <laughs> since the Declaration of Independence and the the Constitution. Um, but the fundamentals, the foundations, have been in place really over that time, and now. There is a, a breakdown in the confidence and faith in these institutions on both sides, but the, the attacks or misgivings are somewhat different on each side. Um, so on the right side, you have uh, this Trumpist populism is one version, but you also have conservatives who feel like their values are being threatened by what they see as activist institutions. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a mixture of things. I think that many conservatives uh, really want a society in which there's more consensus over basic religious values. And so, you know, the national conservatives now, these are the intellectuals that are trying to put this into a more theoretical framework, say that every society needs a dominant religious uh, set of beliefs. And you know, in a way, liberalism arose because nobody could agree what that dominant set of values were. And, uh, you know, it's really kind of rolling the clock back several centuries to say that we are going to have, uh, you know, this one set of goals to which we're headed. Um, but, you know, that's one of the problems with a liberal society because it doesn't set these higher goals. Uh, people feel that there's kind of a lack in their life of uh, a sense of community, a strong sense of community that will bind them to their fellow citizens. And I think that's one of the things that's that's driving this. I think in the American context and in other European countries, there's something else, which is that there's a feeling that they personally are being devalued. They're not being respected. If you're kind of working class white guy uh, that's lost uh, his job um, uh, over the last few years or is working, you know, flipping hamburgers instead of working in a steel plant or an auto factory, uh, you know, that person feels like the society doesn't value his labor the way it valued that of his father or his grandfather. Uh, and it's very easy in those circumstances to blame uh, other people for that situation, particularly because in America right now, there are a lot of people who are doing really well, you know, you go to Wall Street or you go to uh, Stanford University, where I am, or Silicon Valley, and there's you know a lot of billionaires that have made a tremendous amount of money. And so I think a lot of the resentment has to do with that inequality that has emerged that uh, give uh, a lot of advantages to a certain class of people and their children, but uh, really aren't extended to you know, the whole of the society. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your 
internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Uh, so you have critiques and problems coming fr from the conservative side where there's a, a group, let's call them uh, white working class men who feel like they're increasingly on the outside looking in uh, for a host of reasons. And then there are critiques from the left uh, that you catalog very interestingly. And one of the elements, and, and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, well, I mean, it's all interesting, but, but where, where liberalism <laughs> is trying to have people in a diverse society say, look, we're not going to agree on everything, but let's agree that these institutions are here to mediate what happens to us. And I can believe one thing, you can believe another, but I can't impose my beliefs on you. Uh, like that, that's for our institutions to sort out and we should just agree that we'll, we'll submit ourselves to the rule of law and, and, uh, and uh, uh, the judiciary and like what, whatever else the, the, uh, uh, the setup is. And then uh, on the, the left now, increasingly, there's this dissatisfaction um, that's born of a new version of uh, identity politics that has been the successor to the civil rights era identity politics, which you present as trying to live up to the promise of liberalism, where liberalism says, look, we all have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and there are certain groups that are, have been excluded from that for historical reasons, let's say, um, mm -hmm. let's say African Americans uh, during the civil rights era movement saying we're on the outside looking in. So let, let's try and fix that. Um, but then that critique has now morphed into something else um, uh, in part because of a series of uh, academics who've made uh, postmodernist uh, arguments that have then coalesced into a contemporary version of identity politics that at least is prevalent in certain contexts. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's right. I think that there's a liberal form of identity politics that says that people are should be treated as individuals and judged as individuals, but uh, the society looks at the color of their skin or their gender and treats them differently. Uh, and therefore, the liberal society never lives up to its promise of equal treatment. And therefore, uh, you know, what we want to do is just make that liberal society really uh, live up to its own ideals. And that, I think, is, is fine. I, I don't see any complaint, you know, that you can make about that as a, as a liberal, because the fact of the matter is, you know, as you alluded to in 1789, when the Constitution is ratified, the only people who could vote were white men with property. And so this equal, you know, the, the human equality in the Declaration wasn't uh, uh, wasn't remotely the reality in the United States. Uh, and so that's a liberal version of identity politics, where identity is simply 
a tool for mobilization. But I think what's happened in a lot of contemporary uh, societies, particularly in the U.S., is that people move on to say, well, actually, the, that fixed characteristic like your race or your gender is so important uh, and it's so essential that that's the most important thing that defines you as a human being and not who you are uh, uh, as an individual. And the society needs to treat you based on that group that you're a member of and not uh, as an individual. And I think that's where it starts to undermine liberal principles because you know, liberalism asserts the universal dignity of all human beings, not dependent on what group they're a member of, but, you know, simply because they're human beings. And, you know, as a practical matter, that means that a lot of progressives, um, you know, will argue that just being white, uh, you know, means that you're in a position of permanent uh, privilege. And because you can't really remediate that, uh, you know, you have to kind of reverse the hierarchy and, and privilege other people. And I think that's not uh, the best way to organize a society. Yeah, and that, that's something that I think people are struggling with right now where you have a very legitimate... So I, I went to Brown University and um, I was steeped in the civil rights era language uh, that that was then applied to other communities of color, certainly. there There's this idea of a civil rights movement that grows to encompass uh, sexual orientation, uh, Asians and Latinos, pretty much anyone who's in a marginalized group. And, and because our paradigm is very much around the civil rights era, everyone says, oh, like we should have a movement to try and uh, achieve equality for, for each of these groups. Um, so that's the way I was trained academically, if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, there, there's been an evolution since then um, where now instead of arguing for a particular policy, um, you are now uh, saying that all of the institutions are so irredeemably uh, racist uh, or sexist that it's difficult to find um, like a, a policy that's being advocated for individually, um, which would be in your sense, like a, lib like a liberal thing to do is to say, hey, look, like I, I can, uh, you know, like the, the institutions are not working, so let's argue it out institutionally. Um, but now there's this this other intellectual movement that's actually undermining liberal institutions uh, by saying that the group is more important than the individual. I'm defined by the group I belong to. And these institutions are unable to uh, actually uh, reform themselves meaningfully. Yeah, that's no, that's right. I mean, basically, the argument that well, so critical theory is become a meaningless word because conservatives have picked it up as this big boogeyman, but it does have a serious uh, intellectual history uh, as a critique of liberalism. And, you know, uh, many of the uh, more serious versions of critical theory said uh, basically that, you know, your society claims to be liberal, but it's actually kind of a facade and that underneath that profession of equal treatment is actually the dominance of some groups by other groups. Uh, and that that's the reality. It's really those um, those hidden elites that are stacking the deck, using the language of equality, of liberal equality, to fool everybody into thinking that they live in a just society, but uh, they're actually not, that it's a deeply unjust one. And uh, you can't use liberal techniques to, you know, to, to correct uh, a structure that is stacked against, you know, 
these marginalized people. And that's the, um, that's the assertion that I've, I find very questionable because it does seem to me that in the history of liberal America, for example, we actually have made a lot of progress. I mean, uh, you know, there's a certain line that says, well, there's a continuity between slavery and lynching and Jim Crow and police violence. But honestly, you know, if you asked uh, uh, an African-American person, you know, would you rather be a chattel slave in South Carolina, you know, in 1830 or, um, you know, living today, despite, you know, all of the, you know, the, the plain inequalities that exist, uh, you know, which situation is better. And I, I just think that the, you know, the progress that has been made towards those ideals is, uh, is undeniable. But, you know, that doesn't mean that you then say, well, but everything is great. And, you know, let's not worry about existing un- injustices. What you do as a liberal is you say, yes, we're still not fully living up to those ideals. And so we need to go ahead and correct them. But our society is correctable and we can you know, use policy uh, and politics to make changes, to make things better. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high-quality mattress... It is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, and and, and one of the underpinnings of classical liberalism, uh, and you talk about how it is aligned with the scientific method, uh, where you kind of assume a, a set of shared facts. And one, one of the major struggles we have is that at, at this point, it's tough for both sides to uh, to agree on facts. And certainly we, we can see that on the, the right where there is, and you characterize it in the book, interestingly, you say, look, you know, there are people who genuinely believe the election stolen, you know, like, 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 they, like they, for, for them, that that's just the, what, what they think happened. Um, right. But but that we have different version of facts that are arising, um, and uh, and that's something that unfortunately is starting to come up from both sides. Yeah. So there's a complex uh, background to all of this. You know, part of it um, has to do with us again with critical theory. Actually, uh, you know, there is a view that appeared on the left uh, 
in postmodernist thought that was probably best uh, articulated by Michel Foucault that said that science claims to be this objective uh, approach to cognition that simply reflects objective reality, but in fact, uh, it's something that's used by elites to manipulate uh, people. And he said this with, res with respect to homosexuality, incarceration, madness, you know, all of these were categories that were basically used by hidden elites to keep people down. And, you know, honestly, uh, in the cases that he cited, he did a lot of historical studies of the way that prisoners were incarcerated and the reasons for which they were incarcerated. And there's a lot to what he was saying. You know, this is a way to hold down lower class people and keep them from making demands on the system. But he then generalized this to say that in general, science is really not objective. It's, it's simply a tool that's used by powerful people to manipulate uh, others. And you can see now that that argument that begins on the uh, left has now drifted over to the right. So you think about the uh, coronavirus epidemic and you know the refusal to believe that public health authorities uh, that were telling people to get vaccinated or to wear masks people simply did not believe that that was based on science, that this was simply an effort by, you know, powerful people to manipulate and use that power, uh, you know, to force uh, others to, to bend to their will. And so now it's something that's shared, uh, you know, on both sides of the spectrum. But I would say another really critical thing that happened in the interim is technology. Uh, yeah. You know, so I... Uh, indicating how old I am. You know, when I was a kid in the 1960s, there were three television channels, broadcast TV channels, and you had to get all of your news pretty much from one of those three, and they were pretty much indistinguishable. But it also meant that there wasn't uh, this possibility of having these radically different uh, uh, views of reality. Uh, whereas, you know, with the rise of the internet, anyone can say anything, right? There's no uh, necessary fact-checking. There's no higher hierarchy of credible sources. Uh, and therefore, if you, you know, type in uh, to Google, you know, uh, are mRNA vaccines safe? You'll get, you know, thousands of hits that will say, oh, no, they're completely unsafe. This is really something terrible that's being done to you. And, um, you know, frankly, that's destroyed the possibility of having a common empirical base of knowledge. I mean, we agree in a liberal society that we're not going to agree on the highest things as defined by religion. But, you know, if you don't agree who won the last election or should I, you know, take a vaccine, then you're going to end up in a lot of trouble. Uh, and I think that's exactly where we are. So some of it is due to this skepticism and distrust of, uh, of science. But it's also due to, I think, a technology that kind of flattens everything and, and sort of makes everything equal. Every fact is as good as every other fact, even if some of those facts are completely untrue. Well, you'll be happy to know, Frank, I also remember when it was just three networks, uh, ABC, <laughs> CBS, and NBC, and then Fox was born, and The Simpsons came on our TVs, and it was the 80s, so I remember. Uh, and, and totally agree that social media and the proliferation of uh, sources of information has now led to a splintering of the American consciousness. Uh, and it's tough to bring everyone back if 
uh, you can't agree on facts. Um, and that's one of the foundations of liberalism is that we have to be able to stare at it and, and uh, have facts that we can agree on. So you make a series of recommendations. Um, first, you go through liberalism and, and then you say, hey, for all these critiques, is there a better way? And you argue, well, uh, not really. I mean, we pretty much have to try and <laughs> to, to stick to this. Yeah. So so let's figure out what the path looks like. Um, so one argument you make is that uh, you don't want to base national identity around uh, for example, membership in one ethnic group or another, if you can help it, <laughs> that if you can right. in, invest in national identity in intelligent ways, like that, that's worthwhile. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about something. Uh, so it was during COVID and I wanted to do something positive around uh, Asian Americans and, you know, like not, not beating us up. Um, and so I helped start a campaign called uh, all Americans say pretty much saying we're all Americans, you know, like uh, we're all in this together. Um, and there were people who actually uh, found it problematic that I, I was uh, both using American and the flag um, to denote diverse communities or Asians in particular, because they actually thought that the phrase all American meant, let's say Caucasian uh blonde people or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, the point is that I consider myself uh, uh, American and all American and, you know, so should you. And, you know, it's like if, if we give up on um, that identity and the flag and you wrote a book called Identity. So, you know, like you went in pretty deep on this. I, so I always felt like uh, American encompasses uh, all of us. Um, and if we can invest in that meaningfully, uh, that's a win. Um, but I, I will say that I was kind of surprised. And I also felt like it was something generational where I'm in mm -hmm. my 40s. And so for me, like, it's like, yeah, sure, we're all American. And the, but there were people who were younger, um, who actually, like, chafed at the notion of using uh, that term, all American or American or the flag, like, uh, on diverse communities. Yeah, well, so there's a couple of different sources of that. When I was young, uh, you know, I grew up in New York City and uh, there wasn't a large Japanese American or indeed not that big an Asian, you know, sub-community uh, in, in the city. And, you know, as I was growing, and then we moved to central Pennsylvania because my dad taught at Penn State and that was an even more kind about of- About a ton of Asians in central PA, huh, Frank? No, yeah. <laughs> You know, and so I would get teased, you know, by white kids and made fun of and so forth. And so I thought, you know, and I'd ask my father, well, you know, when people say, where are you from? Uh, what do I say? And he said, just say, I'm an American. And they say, well, but where, where did you come from? And say, I was born in Chicago. Uh, you know, that's all you need to say, because an American doesn't denote a person of a certain race. Uh, it simply denotes somebody that has taken, you know, that is a citizen that take, you know, is loyal to the ideals of America and you qualify. And I always thought that that was a tremendous achievement that I was living in a country where, you know, coming from a, an Asian family, I could uh, associate myself with the dominant, you know, cultural group in the society and not feel uh, embarrassed about that. And I think if you go to a naturalization ceremony, uh, you know, anywhere in the country, it's an unbelievably moving experience because you get all these people from Korea, from Iran, from Guatemala, you know, all over the world that 
uh, take the uh, oath of naturalization, and then at the end of it, they're declared Americans. And I just think that's such a big achievement. And there are very few countries where you can actually do that. You can't do that, you know, in Germany or Sweden or a lot of European democracies where, you know, the the, the very adjective uh, uh, German or, or Swede or Japanese for that matter doesn't denote simply a citizen of that country. It denotes a member of the dominant ethnic group, right? So I think that that was a tremendous achievement of the United States. But now you're getting these people on the left that say, yeah, I don't want to be an American. I don't want to associate myself with that dominant group. I'm proud to be the member of this, you know, small subgroup. And, and that's really who I care about because these are people like me. And I think that that basically takes them full circle to join hands with all the nationalists and racists that say that, you know, these, um, these kinds of characteristics are what are important and not your loyalty to a set of uh, uh, liberal and democratic ideals that, for me, uh, defined what it meant to be an American. And I think, you know, we're being dragged backwards, both by these Neanderthal people on the right that still think of an American as being a, you know, a white person, but also by people on the left that kind of accept that and say, yeah, we're different and we're proud of it and we're not going to, you know, we don't want to associate with you. Um, so, so this is one of the things I wanted to discuss with you. There are a couple of big things. I mean, you've very effectively cataloged some of the dysfunctions of our institutions uh, and what, what I, in, in terms of the vitocracy, what we opened up with. Um, uh, and so uh, I think that there's a lot of frustration and energy rising on both sides. What I'm doing now is hoping to modernize and advance some of our institutions so they're more genuinely responsive and representative and, and don't have this effective uh, disenfranchisement and, and disempowerment of the vast majority of Americans, which I, by the way, totally believe is a huge part of this problem. <laughs> and so you you make right, right. you make a series of recommendations. Um, I, I feel like uh, like there there are a couple of big directions we should be taking. One is to try and upgrade and modernize various institutions so that they are more responsive and and uh, uh, accountable and proactive. Because right now there's so many of us who just look up and say like you know, like, do I believe in these institutions? And and as you say, uh, the mistrust is rising, like the trust is uh, declining fast. Um, and so the, the, the response right now, in my opinion, is not a genuine upgrading of most of these institutions, it's trying to talk about them better. It's like the institutions, then it's like, oh, we just need to invest in better social media accounts, and then people will trust us more. <laughs> and, 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 like, I don't right. think that's the answer. Right. So like, we have to try no. and, uh, and, and upgrade them. Um, uh, but you also make a series of recommendations around, and I, I'll talk about one that's hugely important, where you compare the conservatives in America to the conservatives in the UK, and the conservatives in the UK decided to expand the franchise and say, look, uh, our ideas uh, will win with people of different backgrounds. And by the way, I think this would work in the US in, in many ways, because you can see, for example, more Latinos uh, he heading right. to the Republican Party and like more people. I will say too, there, there, there are some fed up Asians that are heading that direction too. <laughs> and, and, right, and so, right. um, and so you, you could compete and expand the franchise. The dark path, the path they're taking is to try and curb 
voter participation and make it harder and say, hey, even though we're a declining number, we're going to, to maintain control by trying to just make it tougher. Uh, and, and you argue very convincingly that, look, like there actually is a better path that's better uh, for democracy itself and liberal institutions that might actually work better for that group. Now, I, I'm not optimistic that they'll take your advice, but I, I thought it was a very compelling no. <laughs> argument. No, I mean, I think the MAGA Republicans are painting themselves into a corner uh, where they're saying, you know, we're not going to create this big tent. We're not inviting a lot of people in. Uh, but because they are not a majority of the country, it means that they're going to keep losing elections unless they start manipulating those elections or, you know, pushing for non-democratic uh, outcomes. And that's, you know, not a good formula. Uh, it's a formula for a lot of civil strife. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, I think it's going to hurt. Uh, it's going to hurt them. Uh, you know, the 19th century British uh, approach, British conservative approach really was the one that was taken by Benjamin Disraeli, who, you know, uh, pushed the second reform bill that opened up the franchise to a lot of working class British people. And it turned out that they could be uh, they could be motivated by patriotism, by certain pride in their, you know, their national institutions. And, uh, you know, that was the basis for uh, their dominance of British politics really up until the early 20th century. And I think the Republican, you know, the Republicans had been on that path under Reagan. Uh, you know, Reagan did not have an ethnic uh, understanding of who is an American. He was uh, you know, happy, uh, content with immigration, uh, you know, accepting other people that wanted to join uh, the American family. He was open to the world and internationalist uh, and so forth. And that, it seems to me, is a very, you know, powerful formula. But uh, right now, that's not that's not where much of the Republican Party is, unfortunately. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm pessimistic that they're going to take your advice, but I thought it was a very, very useful historical example. Um, you also discuss uh, allowing communities to make more decisions for themselves and not nationalizing and federal and uh, and making everything the um, decision of the federal government, which I thought was very right. very interesting. I mean, that's also uh, very aligned with a lot of what we're doing with Forward is we're trying to go to communities and give people uh, more choice uh, in local races because now a majority, maybe up to seventy percent of races are uncontested or uncompetitive. And so people don't have any meaningful choice. Um, I was right. just in Missouri in a district that's uh, this great, great woman was looking at running. I'd say her name, but you know, I don't want to put pressure on, on her decision to run. Um, but she was running in a district that's 60, 40 Republican. Uh, and if you were a, a Democrat, it's a waste of time because you're going to lose. Um, and so she's hoping to run as forward party in that district. And she's a civil engineer. Uh, she's kind of a rational uh, middle of the road type. And her argument is, look, like I want to run as forward party because I think I could get all the Dems as long as they didn't run anyone themselves. And then I think I could get 20 percent of the Republicans because a lot of them are like me. And so that that's her plan. And that's something that hopefully we can help her with in Missouri. Um, but that that's our hope in a lot of districts uh, around the country so that you could actually get people uh, in position where they could make a difference in their town and their, their school district uh, in their county, like whatever the unit of government is. Um, so that that's a lot of what the forward party is driving towards. There are people that would be very upset about that uh, approach in terms of saying, look, we should stop federalizing every issue. Um, but I, I think that what you were saying is 
uh, really important that maybe we should let communities decide more of these things? Yeah, I think that uh, in American constitutional history, there are certain issues that should be um, decentralized in decision making and, and given to you know local communities. But there's others that you can't you know do that with. And so the prime example of the latter had to do with slavery, right? That yep. Before the Civil War, people in the South said, well, that should be up to local communities to, and if we want that institution, we should be allowed to decide democratically to have it. And it was Abraham Lincoln that said in his debate with Stephen Douglas, no, that's not true. Not everything can be decided by a, a local democratic majority. There are some things that are a matter of principle, like uh, the equality of all human beings that's enshrined in our Declaration of Independence. And therefore, that has to be taken out of the realm of democratic choice because that's a fundamental uh, value. But, you know, a question of do we spend our money on, on a road or do we buy a sports stadium or do we, you know, do something else with the local tax dollars? Uh, there's really no reason why that shouldn't be made by the local uh, community. And so, you know, if you exempt a certain category of fundamental rights, you know, based issues, then I think absolutely you should give communities uh, the opportunity to, to make their own decisions. And, you know, with regard to something like healthcare, maybe you do need certain national minimal standards for if you're going to have a national healthcare system. Uh, but, you know, there's probably some virtue to having states implement it, uh, you know, as they see fit. Uh, it may mean that not everybody gets treated uniformly, but uh, I, I think that, you know, as long as you are providing the basic, you know, health care, the actual detailed way in which it's done, you know, could probably be left up to localities. So... If you buy, and I think you do, that this argument that, look, these institutions, we need to try and uh, resuscitate them because this is the best system we have, the best hope we have. Um, what, what are reforms uh, that you're excited about to the extent that you think that there, there does need to be some kind of rejuvenation uh, of, of some of these mechanisms? Because they are overrun by corporate influence, as you've pointed out, uh, that there are a lot of choke points. It's very hard for a lot of Americans to recover faith and confidence that these institutions are going to suddenly get up and throw off the, all of the, like the, <laughs> the, 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 the fetters. Uh, and there are different people that are mad for different reasons. Like some might be like, hey, why can't we address climate change? Others might, might you know, might be, might be angry about right. um, something we do do. There's, uh, as you can, and as you know, in your book, there's such rampant mistrust that at this point, everyone's mad about potential overreach. Um, so you you have these overlapping concerns um, where everyone's upset. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of my favorite quotes in your book is you said, um, look, it's not about the size of the state. It's, it's about its quality. Uh, like the quality is much more important. Um, what can we do that would make the state actually better? Like what are, what are your top uh, hopes for what we well, can do? Uh, yeah, there's several different uh, answers to that question. Um, you know, the first has to do with institutional changes that will reduce polarization 
so with, <laughs> with respect to your uh, prospects for the forward party, you know, the most important of them is changing the voting system. Amen. Because let's go. Unless you, unless you move to rank choice voting or better yet proportional representation, then, you know, I think third parties really have uh, a really hard time getting any traction. Uh, so that's one thing I think you could uh, limit the terms of Supreme Court justices so that, sure. uh, you know, you don't have these huge stakes of appointing somebody that's going to be on the bench for the next 40 years. Uh, you could limit it to 18 or even, you know, a shorter length of time. You could get rid of uh, the filibuster. Uh, I'm not sure I'd take it all the way down to 50 in the Senate, but, you know, if you simply reduced it to 55, uh, it would be a little bit counter-majoritarian. Um, but, you know, it wouldn't block things uh, as much as they're blocked under the current system. If you only needed you know, a small handful of senators from the other party to, uh, to agree. So those are some, uh, some things that could be done. Now, in terms of actually uh, making the government more effective, I think that uh, we really need to reform the, uh, the civil service, particularly the federal civil service. Uh, you know, I know that a lot of Republicans think that that's the deep state and they're actually out to destroy the civil service. Uh, you know, uh, the Trump administration right before the election issued this executive order on creating a Schedule F that basically would eliminate all protections for federal civil servants and allow them to fire uh, whoever they wanted. And I think that, you know, we actually need to move in the other direction to improve the professionalism uh, and the nonpartisan, impersonal character of our civil service. Uh, right now, you know, for, just to give you one small example, something like only 4% of federal bureaucrats are under the age of 30. And if you're talking about a government that's savvy about technology and, you know, understands and is comfortable with using technology, I think you're going to need a few more 20-year-olds. You know, yeah, I'd in, say so. Mix. Uh, in fact, I mean, the average age of federal bureaucrats has it's been close to retirement age for some time. Uh, um, uh, and I think that in general, uh, you need to actually reduce the number of political appointees. There's like four to 5,000 uh, that we have to appoint with every change of administration. And it excessively politicizes the civil service. It means that a lot of people, a lot of positions remain vacant, you know, sometimes for years uh, at a time. Uh, and I think we also need to change the incentives. I mean, both positive and negative. Um, uh, you have to be able to um, reward people that, you know, are good performers or have spill skills that are very specialized in Canada, part in the finance ministry there. They have an office that oversees public-private partnerships, which are very complicated approaches to infrastructure. And guy that runs that office, you know, was recruited off of Wall Street and he's paid a million dollars uh, Canadian, uh, which in American dollars is still a lot of money. But, you know, they say, well, you know, that's how you have to pay somebody with that kind of skill. Whereas we've got a classification system that's 70 years old. Oh, gosh. Really it's such it's a disaster. A, yeah, it's designed for a... A, a government of clerks and typists, you know. Yeah, it's it's slow, cumbersome, makes it very, very difficult to recruit people who have 
frankly, the ability to command high salaries in the private sector, where anyone who goes into it then has to do it for such like this uh, sense of altruism and purpose. Um, But even then, uh, the speed is so slow that even if they want to do it, they're like, I can't wait six, 12 months for a decision on, on no, that's uh, right. you know, well, the compliance their- requirements for getting a job in, in the federal bureaucracy are just ridiculous. I recently, I, I now once again, have a security clearance because I'm a trustee of the Rand corporation that does classified research. And, uh, you know, even there, they want to know every foreign national I've met in the last seven years. Now I'm a, you know, You've been around, teach, man. You probably yeah. met a lot of foreign nationals. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's like hundreds and hundreds of people, you know. Uh, and you know, I can't possibly remember all the all the people I've met over the, that period. So anyhow, there's lots of things like that that really stand in the way. And I see this in my students. You know, hardly any of them. You mean your Stanford students are not all clamoring to go work for the government? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, I mean, the ones that are actually more public spirited, you know, they want to go to work for an NGO or for sure. an international organization, but they don't want to go into the federal government. And, you know, I you mean, I shouldn't laugh like want. we wish they would. But the fact is, yeah. if they did go right now, uh, you know, like some of them might cycle out after a certain period because that they're, they're yeah. not really doing the kind of work they want or not having the kind of impact they want. I mean, that that's a problem, too. Yeah, they're not being rewarded really for good performance, and so especially if they're watching their classmates uh, like advance and make money and do all this stuff, they're like, ah, you know, um, because the the government's not in the habit of rewarding uh, superstars or exceptional performers. Yeah, I mean, there is some effort to do that. The uh, Partnership for Public Service, which is really the premier organization that kind of looks out for public servants, has this annual award called the. I think it's the Samuel J. Hyman Awards or the Sammies in which they, you know, they they look for exceptional uh, civil servants, uh, public servants, and give them, you know, at least some recognition, not a lot of money, but recognition. And the stories are just incredible. Michael Lewis actually wrote, uh, he's written a couple of books about this, but he he wrote this book, The Fifth Risk, about... um, uh, some of the extraordinary people that actually work for the federal government, and nobody knows about these people. You know, I mean, there's yeah, it's very thankless, somewhat anonymous, etc. I mean, if there's something we could do yeah. to help elevate their profile, uh, it'd be it'd be awesome. So you close your book with an appeal for moderation, which I thought was uh, very, very, very appropriate. And you talked about how it was one of the original virtues, uh, and um, I, I would say too that. Um, you know, that that call um, is also very, very aligned with some of the work we're doing. And I'm going to suggest to you, Frank, that there is I don't know. Have you seen the comedian Ronnie Chang? Uh, no. Um, well, you should check him out. But he had a joke that uh, people quoted to me sometimes when I was running for president. But he said that uh, that America needs Asians to be the referee uh, because <laughs> we we. Uh, and his joke was, we don't have any skin in the game because we can't make your sports teams. <laughs> that, that, that we're here to referee the the race war, <laughs> what was yeah. his argument. Um, but there is there was, you know, as usual in humor, like that there was some, you know, truth to it in the sense that Asian Americans tend to be a little bit less ideological, a little bit more pragmatic and practical and uh, and interested in what's working. Uh, and what's not working. And right now the two parties are having increasingly ideological conversations <laughs> that, that, that right, don't seem to right. be focused on. 
uh, you know, people just trying to live better lives. Um, so the, the fact that you a- appealed for moderation at the end of your your book, I thought, uh, was was very uh, powerful and, and mm-hmm. appropriate. Yeah, well, I think a lot of our problems have to do with the fact that, uh, you know, uh, if we say that something's good, then 10 times as much is going to be 10 times as good. So markets are basically a good way, you know, to allocate uh, scarce resources. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you marketize everything, that you're going to have a even better society. And I think that's kind of <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, indeed. the problem with, uh, you know, with the kind of neoliberal policies that we pursued, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Same thing with autonomy. Autonomy is basic to liberalism. We all want to be able to make choices, but that doesn't mean that we should make choices about everything, uh, you know, that we get to make up our own morality and, you know, we get to decide on our own what's good and bad because, it's really that common shared value that gives us a sense of community. And so in, in all of those cases, you know, being a little bit moderate uh, in, you know, uh, something's a good thing, but, you know, maybe too much of it is a bad thing. Uh, maybe a little sense of moderation uh, in that respect would be helpful for all of us. Uh, well, that's a, a phenomenal note to close on. I will say when you talk uh, about our economic system, I can't tell you how many times I got annoyed when people tried to set up this false capitalism, socialism uh, dichotomy. And you're like, look, like, you know, what we need is uh, actually like intelligent regulatory approaches that kind of curb the excesses uh, of unfettered uh, capitalism. Uh, and most Americans could agree that, you know, it's like there's going to be some kind of intelligent middle ground. Uh, but folks had these like very, very, in my mind, just unproductive, not very smart, <laughs> like, oh, that's socialism, yeah. that's capitalism. It's like, you know, come on. Like, you know, like there's, yeah. there, you know, there, there's uh, always, there, there's always something practical and pragmatic that you can find um, in, in the middle, generally speaking, uh, about a lot of these topics. Um, and I, I thought that, you know, your book made a, a fantastic argument for that in, in many different respects. Um, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Liberalism and its Discontents by Francis Fukuyama, one of his 10 books. Uh, so, you know, the, this one is the one I focused on because I thought it was, well, one is the most recent and two, I thought it was the, the most up forwards alley. <laughs> but, but, you, but you contributed a whole lot uh, to wisdom and, and political discourse uh, over the last not to date you, my friend, but decades. <laughs> so, so congratulations for, for that. And, uh, you know, keep on making us smarter and wiser and hopefully more liberal in the classical sense. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Andrew. And good luck to you and all your efforts too. To... Hey, thanks. Yeah. We're, we're, we're just getting started. Really America, more liberal in a classical sense. The most people <laughs> won't get what we're going for there, but some will. <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good.